Well, good morning. It's good to, to be here today. I'm always thankful to be able to come back and have the opportunity to, to teach and be among brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and hopefully the, uh, the prayer is that the teaching this morning edifies you. Um, the last song is, is a good uh, intro into this with the Lord being our fortress and, and things that may come against us as a church. It's, it's good to know that God is in control. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the richness of your word. Thank you for uh, the perfection of your scripture. And thank you for what it teaches us and relays to us. And may we be sensitive, may our spirits be sensitive to what you have for us this morning. And thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. And you look at this picture, and it's like it's uh, with looming clouds. And throughout history, there have been times where there have been looming threats for people. I can think about a, you know, a movie I'd seen, or I'd like to think about World War II, or, or any documentaries on Dunkirk with the British when the Germans were, were closing in on them and they had to be evacuated out. That was a looming threat. Many people would agree that uh, on the political stage now, that China would be a looming threat for for us, for our country? What about for yourself personally? Have you had times in your life where there's been looming threats? I mean, whether it's a health condition or issue at work, something in the community, I mean, just something that, something that happens to you that it's, it's looming in regard to the fact that it's heavy. It's heavy on your spirit. The reality is that for us as Christians, conflict is, uh, is inevitable. Looming threats are inevitable for us, and, and Scripture warns us about it. The Apostle Paul, when he was uh, writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, talked about in the last days there will be difficult times, that uh, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse. Those who are doing the deceiving will be deceived themselves. So I'm going to read through some characteristics that Paul outlined of what the, the last days will be like, what this bad to worse is. And I want you just to visualize to yourself, to just, just to, to visualize and think about within your own lifetime, how have these things worsened? How have they compounded? And specifically, I want you to think about how have they come against the church and how are they growing against the church? Lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, Arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, without gentleness, without love for good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of uh, pleasure rather than lovers of God, and holding to a form of godliness but having denied its power. We can see these characteristics that are just swirling around in our culture today. We can see them in, in the political landscape. We see them with media, big tech. We see them with our consumerism through agendas, political agendas, LGBTQ, critical race theory. We see them through uh, like the social gospel, the, the sexualization of our culture. We see all of these. These are looming threats, and they're escalating enemies of the church. But we can learn from Hezekiah. 
We can look at uh, his life because he had his own threats to deal with. He was the king of Judah and uh, the, the, uh, the southern kingdom. And we'll, t- we'll take a look at what he did, um, what kind of threats did he have to, uh, to withstand. And the text today, if you want to go ahead and find it, it's in 2 Kings 18. It's on page 599 if you're using the, the, the Bible on the pew. Uh, and also 2 Chronicles 32. And that's on page, uh, 2 Chron- yeah, 32, page 710. So we'll be flipping back and forth between 2 Kings 18 and 2 Chronicles 32. So why do we want to look at Hezekiah? I'm, I'm going to back up just a little bit. You don't have to go there, but I'm going to go back to 2 Chronicles 29. We know that from the scripture that Hezekiah became king of Judah when he was 25 years old. And verse 2 tells us that he did what was right in the sight of Yahweh according to all that David his father had done. And I taught a series on this back in the, the uh, a session, uh, a teaching on this back in the fall. And and one of the things we learned about Hezekiah was that um, he pleased the Lord with his diligence and how he was dependent upon him. That from the times of Solomon, King Solomon, when the, the, the kingdom split into the northern and southern kingdoms, 259 years had passed. And scripture tells us that there was no king since the time of Solomon like King Hezekiah who sought the Lord and did according to all that David, his father, had done his forefather, and there was nobody like him for 113 years afterwards. So he's someone good for us to look at. We learned in that first one that, uh, that and I'm sharing this with you because it establishes a foundation of why we're looking at Hezekiah. He, uh, in 14 years, he built, rebuilt uh, uh, worship. He restored worship for the Hebrew people. So remember, 259 years had passed, and 14 years he rebuilt it, and there was no one like him for 113 years afterwards. He did three things. He cleansed the temple and uh, formally got, got idols out of it, other statues of other forms of worship that were going on. And then we learned that likewise for us, we need to be in place of cleansing our temple because Scripture teaches us that we are a sanctuary of God, a place of confessing our sin. He reinstituted sacrificial uh, worship, and then likewise for us, we're called, to, uh, we're called to be in a place of a lifestyle of worship. Paul demanded this of us in Romans 12.1, that we're to live a lifestyle that's sacrificial worship. Then also, he celebrated, uh, celebrated being set apart. He reinstituted the Passover uh, as they had worship and, and would read um, the, the text of the Old Testament. And then as they, um, uh, like with Moses' commands, the Pentateuch, and as th- uh, their worship and as they read and sang and prayed and it just exalted God, then we began to learn that for us on the other side, it's a good thing for us that we celebrate the ordinances of being baptized and take the Lord's Supper. That's coming up soon. And that we're in a place of continual confession before, before God just to exhaust the areas of our life that, uh, that we may have idols tucked away, something that we put before God. So we're looking at Hezekiah because he had to withstand threats of aggression. This foundation he had built, that he had been a part of aligning himself with the Scripture. So what we can know, we can, uh, what we know that as we become more like Christ that, and, and, and less like the culture that we are going to have to withstand attacks as well. Christ taught this. It's, in, it's imminent for us. So we're looking at Hezekiah so we can better be equipped to see what kind of threats he had 
and then how those equate to today. So let's start off in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 1. After these acts of faithfulness, I like this piece right here, because after 14 years of taking a broken down system, a system where he had, he had reformed Judah, restored worship, celebrated the Passover, and he reorganized the priesthood to sustain all of it. It took 14 years of doing this, and after this time of faithfulness, the foundation was in place to withstand the threats of aggression. We need that now. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, uh, came. Now, Sennacherib's predecessor was Saragon II, and he was a mighty military commander. And whenever he died around 705 B.C., what we see is that throughout the Assyrian Empire, it's about the, it takes up about the same space as the modern-day Middle East, that there began to be revolts happening because people were testing his power to see if he could hold it together like Saragon II could. And, um, and so... Um, so why, uh, so, so that was, so they were trying to see, uh, they knew that there was some internal strife going on within the, within the empire, so they began just kind of testing it to see what could happen. And then we pick back up in verse 1, that uh, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities and thought to break into them for himself. So why was he invading? Well, Judah was one of the ones that had revolted. Whenever Saragon died, they stopped paying tribute to Assyria. They stopped sending their money and they stopped being a vassal state that was in, contr- that was in control over the Assyrian Empire. Uh, another issue is that, uh, so, so, so why were they coming to Judah though? Well, they were on their way to Egypt. Egypt was a big fish to fry and they were after Egypt, but they were stopping in uh, Judah with its fortified cities along the way because they wanted to overthrow it and they wanted to subjugate it. He said he wanted to break into them for himself. So now what we see is that uh, four years have passed um, since uh, Sennacherib has become king. And Isaiah uh, gave a prophecy regarding the Assyrian Empire and the impact that they would have on the Hebrew people. Isaiah 8, 7 through 8 says, Now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the mighty and abundant waters of the river, the king of Assyria in all his glory, and it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. Then it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck, and the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So Assyria is this overflowing river, and they years earlier had already overthrown the northern kingdom, and now here they are, at the fortified cities, they're in the southern kingdom, and they've worked their way up to the neck, which is Jerusalem. Let's pick up in verse 2. Then Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he had set his face to make war on Jerusalem. So what would Hezekiah have been thinking? I mean, so if, if Sennacherib had set his face to make war on Jerusalem, there's some determination there. Well, um, we can look at, uh, we can go back and uh, look at... Um, Sennacherib's palace walls, they have these reliefs in them that depict uh, infantry, where you see uh, with the infantry, but people with uh, uh, shields, um, and then you have the the slingers uh, with the rocks, you have uh, bow and arrows, I mean, you have an infantry that's made up of a cavalry, and the the far picture has a, a battering ram, and those things weighed one ton, and they were transportable. 
They would break them apart, and then they could travel about 30 miles a day, the Syrian military could. So they, weren't, they didn't push that one-ton machine along. They would break it into parts, and uh, they, would go, they were known to go under walls, through walls, and over walls. And uh, they would build these things called siege ramps. And this was a, a relief from uh, the siege ramp that they depicted themselves of that in Lachish when they were attacking it. Uh, so to give you an idea of the determination uh, that they had and what Hezekiah was facing, there was a study that was done. I'm just going to share it with you. That, and they determined um, that it would have taken hundreds of workers 24 hours a day uh, for three-plus weeks to be able to build the siege ramps at Lachish. It was 260 foot long. 20,000 tons of stones were put in it overall. Um, and that they determined, because there's, there's a remnants of it still left, that the average stone weighed about 15 pounds. And so they projected that there would have been a small hill next to Lachish and that these hundreds of workers would have gone in and just excavated, quarried and excavated and taken it over and put it at the furthest point from the city wall. And they would just begin building up the incline. And, once, and they would be getting rocks in place. They'd start putting dirt on top of that. And then you can see in the relief how they had wood underneath it that they would roll it up so they could, have a, so they could push that siege. Uh, so it, it, on the siege ramp, that they could push that, uh, the, that device, their battering ram, all the way up it. But they didn't end there. It wasn't only the physical presence that they had. It was a psychological warfare that they brought with them. They would impale people that resisted them. That wasn't their, uh, their choice to the populace because what they wanted to do was overthrow a city and then, or overthrow a country too, and they wanted to depopulate it and send its people other places uh, to help with their economy. And, and so that was, uh, but, but still, psychological warfare, they would instill this piece of it into it to create fear and intimidation. So, so through these slides, I hope you get an idea of what Hezekiah is facing and these people that are going to be bringing this threat of aggression against him. It's nothing that, that any of us in this room could have, would be able to say that we might, would have that kind of fear. And thus, it brings us to the invasion of Jerusalem. And one of the great things about Scripture is we can find, uh, you know, find a topic in multiple places. So like I said, we'll be looking at 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles. Isaiah also captures pieces of it. At this point, I want you to turn to 2 Kings 18 because it has some good details on the invasion. So if you can turn there, 2 Kings 18, verse 13. Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. So he's attacking these cities. And what, what would... Uh, so what he's doing is, you can see the upper one is Jerusalem with the red circle. The lower one is Lachish. So the, the, they were head, uh, the Assyrians were heading down along the Mediterranean Sea to go down into Egypt. And you can just ignore the red and purple lines. But they were heading down there, and they were at Lachish. And now they were about 34 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And so he, and knowing that the military can travel 30 miles in a day, uh, and, the, and they're laying siege to Lachish and other fortified cities in Judah, the, it's a very imminent threat of what's occurring. But Hezekiah tries to appease him once he knows that he's there. But, wh but why would he try to appease him? Well, he tries to concede a little bit. We see that uh, verse 14 in 2 Kings, it says, Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Turn away from me. 
Whatever penalty you give to me, I will bear. So the king of Assyria set a penalty on Hezekiah, and he ended up paying it. For whatever reason, he, he ended up paying it, um, but that wasn't enough. That penalty wasn't enough. It didn't suffice. The king wanted to come against the fortified cities and capture them, and that's what he did. He took the penalty, but it didn't stop anything from happening. And Jerusalem needed protection. They're about to face the onslaught of Assyria's propaganda machine. And we have the opportunity to see it at work and see how it's applicable now for us, for the local church, with the threats that it's getting. And though they physically weren't attacked in Jerusalem, we get to see the aggression and the gaslighting that was occurring. I mean, what did this military do where they felt like they could overthrow a city without uh, a drop of blood being spilt? They did three things. They would undermine authority, assert their dominance through intimidation, and they would influence thoughts. So let's pick back up in 17. 2 Kings 18, verse 17. Then the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabsaris and Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a heavy military force to Jerusalem. This was a delegation of high officials. These people would have been uh, like from the royal family or they would have been high nobility. They, and they could function in capacities as like military commanders or even possibly being second in command to the king. So we see an immediate display of aggression because they are asserting their dominance with this massive military force this heavy military force that they're bringing to Jerusalem. They want to establish their presence. Verse 18, Then they called to the king and Eliakim, the son of Hilkai, who was over the household. So we're going to rattle off a few names and roles of people here. And so to give you an idea, this is, so this is the high delegation for the Hebrew people. And Eliakim, being over the household, indicates being the minister of the palace. So he would have controlled uh, the appointments of the calendar, uh, for the king, would have controlled the king's calendar and appointments. He was the minister of the palace. And Shebna, the scribe, Shebna is second to the minister of the palace. He would be royal secretary to the king. And he would handle foreign and domestic correspondence and the, be head of the royal archives. And, and then third, Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to them. And Joah was a royal herald. He would make the proclamations. The king gave an order. Joah would be the one proclaiming it to the people. So we see a meeting of the top officials. The Assyrians on the outside of the wall. And then on the, uh, uh, we can infer on the top of the wall or somewhere where they can hear within, distance, uh, within shouting distance are the, uh, the Hebrew people. Now we're going to flip to 2 Chronicles 32. We have some uh, ideas of what happened with this delegation. Verse 10. Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, on what are you trusting that you are remaining uh, in Jerusalem under siege? Is not Hezekiah inciting you to give yourselves over to die by hunger and by thirst, saying, Yahweh our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? So we see an undermining of authority, one of the traits, undermining of authority. He says, on what are you trusting? And then we see the influence of thoughts. I mean, is not Hezekiah uh, going to lead you to the place of dying of hunger and thirst, that you're going to have these things? So he's pointing to, he's wanting to influence your thoughts, talking about physical suffering that is inevitable if, you are, uh, when, if we're going to lay siege to your city. And he undermines authority of God by questioning that God even has, the God of the Hebrews even has the capacity to protect them from what's about to happen. Verse 13, do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the lands? 
more asserting dominance of the Assyrian Empire. I mean, look what we've done to other people that have stood against us. We've conquered them all. So now do not let Hezekiah deceive you or incite you like this. And do not believe him, for no god of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? So he's undermining authority of Hezekiah. He says, don't just... Uh, don't let him deceive you or incite you. He asserts the dominance, saying that no God of any land can deliver you from our hand. And then third, he undermines authority, and how much less will your God deliver you? Verse 17. He also wrote letters to reproach Yahweh, the God of Israel. More undermining. So he, these things that, he, that we've been seeing, these three traits, undermining authority, in that uh, influencing thought, asserting dominance, he's able to, these are able to be captured in a written format. So not only was he speaking it, but he was also writing it and saying it. I mean, he was also putting it and writing it and, and leaving it. And they called this out with a loud voice in the language of Judah to the people of Jerusalem who are on the wall to instill fear and terrify them so that they might capture the city. So the Assyrians were actually talking in Hebrew because they wanted... Uh, people to hear it and uh, and the high delegation for the Hebrew people were replied back and said hey would you speak in Aramaic we understand Aramaic just talking that we don't want people on the wall hearing it and let's see what Rabshakeh who was with the Assyrians his the high delegation responded with he said has my master sent me only to your master and to you to speak these words and not to them who sit on the wall doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. So he's instilling thoughts of fear, intimidation, impending doom, influencing their thoughts by not only are you going to be hungry and thirsty, but I'm telling you what you're going to be eating and what you're going to be drinking. And the reason for all of this was because they wanted to capture the city. It wasn't enough that they conceded. It wasn't enough that they paid the penalty and re-entered back into paying a tribute. They wanted to capture the city. 2 Kings 18, verse 31. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me, and eat each of his vine and each of his fig tree, and drink each of the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive oil and honey, that you may live and not die. Well, now he's appealing to a different group of people. He's still influencing thoughts, but he's appealing to familiarity and comfort. Look, I'll, I'll, uh, because this area, he said, you can stay where you are, enjoy the things you have, and when we do come and deport you and take you somewhere else, it'll be similar. And also, think about this in reflection of the impel, how the Assyrians were known to impel people. Think about this, is that he said, but you can live and not die. Don't resist us. Just let us take, run over the city, and then you can live and not die. But didn't Satan make a similar promise to Eve about life and death? In verse 32, But do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying, Yahweh will deliver us. And finally, that this another area of undermining authority of Hezekiah, saying not to listen to him, and, and undermining authority of God, saying he will not deliver you. So we see through these texts, this Syrian aggression is replete with three things. They want to undermine authority, assert dominance through intimidation, and they want to influence thoughts. So the Jewish people put their trust in God, and they 
served under a king. So there's intentionality of the Assyrians to go after these two. It was no secret. So let me say this. So the Assyrians were known to have spies that they would insert throughout the land. And, uh, and so the Assyrians, with, if you look at, go back and read more of the text that I didn't even go through, the Assyrians were aware of reforms that Hezekiah had made in restoring worship. And they were aware that they, suffered, that, that they served under God, capital G, that that was the belief of the people of Judah. So they were aware of that. Uh, so what comments did they make to intentionally undermine authority? They said, on what are you trusting to, uh, to prevent the siege? against you. He said, you think that Yahweh will deliver you was one of the questions. Do not let Hezekiah deceive or incite you. Um, and then they wrote letters of reproach capturing all these things. The Syrians pridefully asserted their dominance with intimidation techniques because they brought a heavy military presence so the people would feel overwhelmed. And they said, do you not know the history of our Assyrian empire and what we've done to other nations? No God of any nation can deliver you from our hand. And then Rabshakeh worked to shape their thinking by influencing their thoughts. I mean, he talked about dying of thirst and hunger, of eating their dung and drinking their urine. He worked to instill fear into them, fear and terror, impending doom. He appealed to their familiarity, offering life and not death, that there's a way out for them, what they would perceive as a way out. But all of these three coalesce into a threat that is looming for the people, for Hezekiah and the people in Jerusalem. But, I'm, but I want to ask you this, where else in Scripture do we see an example of similar tactics being used? I mean, who undermines God's authority among people and replaces it with his own, wanting people to nearly subjugate themselves to him and worship him? Who asserts his dominance, wanting it to be the highest? Who influences the mind through what's seen and what's heard and what's felt, what's imagined or perceived might even occur? Who deceptively appeals to comfort over conviction? And who in a cunning manner instills fear so as to detract from God? The source of aggression. This is a source. Let's look at the source of aggression that we would see in our time. Let's look, work through it and see. So, who undermines the authority of God with lies? Jesus spoke to this directly. John 8 44 says, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Who asserts dominance? Isaiah spoke to this, Isaiah 14, verses 13 through 14. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. And who's a deceiver? This is captured in Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. Who's crafty? Paul wrote about this. But I fear that as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be corrupted from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Source of aggression. 
We can see the undermining of authority, the asserting of dominance through intimidation, the influencing of thoughts, the deception, the cunning. It's Satan. Tactics of, that the Assyrian aggression had are tactics that we can see now uh, against the church through Satan. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, that the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. To the church in Ephesus, he said, the course of this world operates according to the ruler of the power of the air. That's making reference to Satan. So we can see these traits at work against the church now, and when we see them, we can know the source. We can know the source whenever we see undermining of authority occurring, when we see the asserting of dominance through intimidation, when we see the influencing of thoughts. I mean, do you see them today at work against the church? What are active threats of aggression that we see against Christ's church? I mean, in, uh, in the last few years, we've seen shootings, marches, riots that have displayed people being lovers of self, treacherous, reckless, without self-control. We've seen rhetoric that's boastful, conceited, unloving, and definitely irreconcilable. We've seen a society with eroding values where people are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, unholy, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, and lovers of money. There's three more to address, and I'm going to take some time to build into them. But what I want to do is start talking, we'll start with a person, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a Christian pastor and activist that lived during uh, the Nazi rise to power. Uh, he helped the German church battle Nazi ideology that was trying to infiltrate the church. Because this Nazi ideology, didn't, it took years for it to infiltrate the German church. But he recognized it early on, and thus the reason for his quote. He, um, he said, but once a heresy, you know, that would be a false teaching, has become an open scandal, it must of necessity be pros- proscribed. That means it's not a common word we use, proscribe. This means denounce it. So once a false teaching is recognized, you have to denounce it. And that's what he stood for. He disagreed with the fact that Christians would surrender precepts to a political ideology. So he didn't remain silent. What were some of the things that he witnessed? Headlines in 1933, the New York Times. Nazis demand a ban on the Old Testament. So as the German church began to align with this Nazi ideology, then they began to selectively do things within the church. They didn't like the Jews, so they cut out the Old Testament and German Bibles. They didn't like the Jews, so what did they do? They, uh, they prevented people of a Jewish descent from even being able to serve in ministry. The, who was in power began to control what was happening in the churches when the churches aligned. His opposition, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's opposition, built into calling for a clear division from what he called the Reich Church of Nazi ideology and the Confessing Church of Evangelicals. He said they were two, these were two different things. There's a split that's within the church right now. And you can see what he was leading people into. Germany's church struggle echoes the Reich. And he led some 3,000 clergy pastors. He was part of them in standing up against this. Uh, Bonhoeffer was put in concentration camp and eventually killed for his views 
and trying to protect the evangelical church of Germany. But actually with him, he had been able to leave Germany, but he refused to stay gone. He wanted to be back. He said, what role do I... Christians were trying to get him to not go back into Germany. He said, well, you know what that'll be. How Apostle Paul was warned of he'd be tied up in the death that was going to be coming to him. Well, he was warned likewise. People were saying, this this will be a certain death for you. And sure enough, it was. But he said, who am I? What integrity do I have if I'm going to sit on the outside, let Germany fall underneath this horrible ideology, and then afterwards I'm going to show up, and I'm going to act like I can help lead people when I can even lead through it? So my question to you is, how far-fetched is this now? What increasingly aggressive strategies are being used to malign evangelical Christians? What slide of the hand is present to change the cultural perception? Some want their political ideologies taught from here, the pulpit. Just like the Nazis used the pulpit to disseminate their ideas. Some want biblical teachings modified, just like the Nazis removed the Old Testament from the German Bible. Some people want particular messages proclaimed within local churches that are not even found in Scripture. Like the Nazis when they were trying to propagate their Aryan views. They taught that in churches. There's some who want evangelical Christians to surrender teachings and the influence of biblical precepts for political ideology. The church is under attack. I mean, Jesus said it's going to happen. The more in line we are with him, then the, the more disharmonious we are with the world. Paul warned of it that wolves and sheep clothing are coming, and they're coming to devour. But remember this, we're also taught that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Paul said this in Ephesians 6. Our battle is against spiritual forces in high places. So when I say that, I'm saying that, I'm saying you don't, well, we're not in a place if we're going to be obedient to Scripture, then we take it all. We, don't live in a build, we may live in a culture that's built a Bible, but if we're going to claim ourselves as being conservative evangelical Christians, then we take the whole thing. We take all the Scripture that we have, and we, and we weigh ourselves against it. And so the Scripture says our battle is against flesh and blood. Against, it's not against flesh and blood, but it's against spiritual forces in high places. So that's the source. When we see this aggression against the church, understand that's the source. Scripture says deceivers are being deceived themselves. So we shouldn't have a surprise whenever we see the blatant shift that is occurring with current attacks on our faith. A page is being taken from the Nazi playbook. We're in a place where the narrative about the conservative Christian church is being controlled elsewhere. We're, We're not defining ourselves... We, d- we define ourselves by what Scripture teaches, but understand those that control the political narrative, narrative are defining conservative Christians in a different way. So let's begin to look at the three characteristics that Paul talked about will, will constitute difficult times in the last days. Holding to a form of godliness, but having denied its power. There is a feverish working in our political landscape to undermine the authoritative teaching of Scripture. There, uh, there are various political agendas that are at work that are strong, that are pervasive, that go against Scripture. Within the last few decades, we've seen Lutherans, Presbyterians, and Episcopalians split over LGBTQ issues. Right now, the, the, 
the United Methodist Church is right in the middle of it. I mean, for years their leadership has had a, a battle going on between same-sex marriage and homosexual clergy. But as of 2023, they're official, officially allowing disaffiliation votes. That means if you don't agree with the leadership, um, then, then, um, then you can vote to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church. The only thing that has prevented it so far was that there was a large delegation from Africa of United Methodist Churches, very conservative group from Africa, and, and their voting membership prevented uh, this takeover, so to speak, or this, uh, this finalization of the direction UMC was going. But I have a friend who goes to UMC, and, and uh, what you, they said you needed, well, you needed a 66 a full 66% vote, full two-thirds, so 66 and two-thirds vote to be able to disaffiliate, and they were three-quarters of a person short, like half a percent short. So that means the majority of the people there, including their pastor, wants conservative things, and he teaches conservative things, but because they were three-quarters of a person short, then they stay in the denomination. They weren't able to buy out and buy their property and get out. Now, they could still leave, but my point being is, is this, is that uh, we have to, um, so my point being this, is that just because someone may be in a, like a, what we call a mainline Protestant church, it doesn't mean they're evil. There's just some things that go on at the highest levels of some of the, of the liberal uh, Protestant churches that reflects poorly on some on brothers and sisters who are going to some of these um, well, we need to be in a place to exercise caution when it comes to holding to, a form of gov- uh, holding to a form of godliness because we can see pastors with how they dress, titles that they have. Maybe we can even see denominations that operate within buildings that have a cross, but they deny God's power in rejecting the authority of what Scripture teaches. They're ignoring and skewing what Scripture teaches for the support of their political agendas. And Isaiah warns us about this. Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute light for darkness and darkness for light. There is an authority that has historically been carried from the position of the pulpit within the body, local bodies. And there there are those with particular political ideologies that are wanting to take it over. And that's no secret when you read some of their literature. But, but the unfortunate thing is, is that we see that they're systematically gaining ground from things that, uh, from the splits that are occurring within denominations. Their threat of aggression is undermining the authority of Scripture from within the church. They hold views that are opposite to its teaching. LGBTQ agenda is not affirmed in the Bible. Therefore, leaders promoting it hold to a form of godliness, but deny its power. Next, through malicious gossip, that they strive to assert a dominance. So malicious here is translated diabolos, which means accuser. Well, who's the accuser? 34 times this refers to Satan in the New Testament. It's where we get our word diabolical from. It's when we use speech intentionally to harm somebody, to destroy or to damage somebody. It's diabolical rhetoric, diabolical malicious gossip. But through the use of wording and redefining, what I'm going to present to you is that they're maligning conservative evangelicals. In recent years, there's been a coalition of various faith groups that have gotten together. I mean, like, uh, literally various faith groups. It could be uh, Jews, Muslims, uh, 
some within, like I say, liberal Christians and atheists and secular humanists, agnostics, they've come together to battle uh, Christian nationalism. Now that's its own thing, and so I'm not, I'm not talking about that. But what, but what, what I'm saying is there's been a coalition of people coming together on that. But within this coalition, there's the Baptist Joint Commission for Religious Freedom, which sounds good, but they support abortion and LGBTQ agenda. And then there's the Freedom from Religion Foundation, which are atheists. So, so the, Baptist, the Baptist Joint Commission and this atheist uh, organization had a coalition because they, they wanted to address issues that happened uh, on January 6th. And, and I'm not, I'm not, what I want to do is pull something that they said in the report is what I'm doing. And within the report, they listed what they considered or what would be, what would be considered extremist groups. White supremacy groups, uh, militias, yeah, they, they listed those in there. But you know what they also listed? They also listed Christians that don't fit their redefining of acceptable Christianity. So, um, what do they consider to be an acceptable Christian? Those that are actively involved in their faith community. So we're all here. So we're involved in ours. So we would fit their initial defining of a, an acceptable Christian. Um, someone who has behaviors that are uh, harming to minorities, democracy, or the broader measure of social safety, and that's the, the broader measure is a code word for common good. Um, acceptable Christians advocate in the civil arena for anything that protects and defends the rights of all people groups. Uh, and again, that's common good, and that has some elements of, of critical race theory with oppressor and those that are oppressed. But, but I'm not here to talk about that. What I'm talking about is how they define acceptable expressions of Christianity. And this is from their own words, from the Baptist Joint Commission and those of the, the atheist group Freedom From Religion, because they're the ones who control the political narrative about conservative Christians. This is what they said. If you oppose same-sex marriage, if you oppose transgender rights, and if you endorse traditional gender roles, then you are identified as falling outside of acceptable expressions of Christianity. So that means, and also they go on to say, because you fall outside of acceptable expressions of Christianity when you identify with these three things, that now you are part of the potential threat to the American democracy and Christianity, Christianity the faith of Christianity. So that's the subtle piece that I'm talking about. They take something that's real, which racism is real. They take that, but then subtly they're trying to push in what conservative Christians believe they're trying to push us in into that group of extremists because they're subtly redefining us uh, within our political landscape and they're the ones that control it they um, and because they're aligning us with these extremists then that's if you're if you're familiar with postmodernism I mean, we're in more of a metamodern age right now, but, but these last few years we've seen metamodern, it allows you to see the last couple of years the metamodern piece is getting bigger, but, but the postmodern piece has, uh, because, there's a pre because there's a critical race theory talks about oppressors and oppression, those that are oppressed, then, uh, then that means the system needs to be dismantled is what the teaching is. So, so my point is this, is that because they align conservative Christians with extremists that I think justifiably need to be dismantled, 
they're aligning us with them, but that means that they want to dismantle conservative Christians. Look at the wording. Look at what's being spoken. We're being malaligned with this ultra-alternative right people. There's people, uh, they want to do this. They want to upend our beliefs and use our local churches as vassals for a political agenda that they're pushing. When I talk about LGBTQ, LGBTQ agenda being one of those. So this is what Paul warned of and reassured that there will be difficult times, perilous times in the last days. That's going to happen. But another thing he says in the same scripture is that people who are part of the church, people who follow the teachings of Scripture, it'll be obvious what's happening and that they won't make progress within the true church. So that's a reassuring piece for us. That's a good thing for us. But this malicious, diabolical talk against the true church is on display as the enemy works to attain and assert dominance through uh, intimidation over conservative Christians. And finally, without a love for good, they seek to influence thoughts. As Christians, we have a positive correlation with good. There's Psalms 107, uh, verse 1, says, Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for He is good. So we associate good with God. And, and we even associate good things coming from God. Um, the, um, James spoke about this. Every good thing uh, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. But they like to use the word good too, common good. And so what I'm saying is I'm talking about what they're lumping us in with, okay? We're being lumped in with extremists. And here are examples. Uh, there's this one organization called Vote Common Good, helping people of faith make the common good their voting criteria. But, I mean, I like the word good, so what is meant by common good? Well, I can tell you exactly how they define it because I'm quoting when Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself, and when Paul says not to seek your own interests only, but also the interests of others, and when John and James say that no one can say they love God or have faith in God if they fail to demonstrate love for a neighbor, then they're calling people to seek the common good. So this means that good-hearted Christians, Jews and Muslims, and people of all traditions cannot simply vote for what's best for themselves or what's even best for their religion, their party, or their race alone, but must be concerned with the common good. So maybe they mean by common good, maybe they mean unity, because I know in the body of Christ we're called to unity, we're called to the one another's love one another, be kind to one another, we're called to step into that, so maybe they mean that for common good. But we can learn what something is by what they say it's not. So the Baptist joint commission clarifies what they condemn they condemn and in in, uh, in baptist joint commission they uh they're they're supported by a vote for common good they, uh, the baptist joint commission clarifies that they condemn church disseminated voter guides that highlight biblical world uh, view issues to vote on so they're against it so, so if the church is against abortion and there are candidates that in, 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 in there's a voter guide in the back of the church that highlights, well, this candidate's for abortion and this one's against. They're, they condemn that, that we would want to vote for something that we understand aligns with Scripture. 
They condemn anti-LGBTQ views because they fail to advocate for the rights of all people groups. They instruct that Christianity must recenter itself on the teachings, the example of the spirit of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, I, I don't mind that. That's great. That's what we're doing. But in the same interview, one of their leaders says, but that requires structural change. That's part of postmodernism. People in positions of relative power have to advocate for the marginalized. You know, and, and, and some of the things, I mean, there are good things they're talking about, but the problem is, is that they're associating the fact that we have to, like what Bonhoeffer so desperately fought, he fought the fact that we give up Christian precepts for political ideologies. So we can see from how they talk about the common good that it's not about unity. It's postmodern soft talk to dismantle part of the people that they define as extremists, which conservative Christians, dismantle and upend our beliefs. They want to take control of the pulpit to have their message disseminated. What do you think about this statement? We demand the freedom of all religious confessions in the state. We uphold the point of view of a positive Christianity without tying itself confessionally to any one confession. We are convinced that a permanent recovery of our people can only be achieved from within on the basis of the common good before the individual good. So they want the freedom of all religious confessions in the state, and they want the common good before the individual good. Do you think that Christians Against Christian Nationalism said it? What about the Baptist Joint Commission? Maybe Faith and Public Life said that. Or vote for common good. Vote for the common good. Maybe they said it. No, none of them did. None of them did. It was from what's called Positive Christianity and Article 24 of the 1920 Nazi Party Platform. Does that sound familiar 103 years later? To know the source of aggression against the church can better identify what the game plan of the enemy is. Did it work well for Hezekiah to concede to Sennacherib when he sent the penalty and he stripped the temple that he had rebuilt? He stripped it of its gold and its silver. How well did that work for him? That didn't work well for him when he conceded that. There's controlling political narratives that have maligned us with extremist group, maligned conservative Christians with extremist groups. The diabolical rhetoric denounces Christians if you're not defined how they define us. And it targets us for a dismantling and reveals their intent to reshape us into something that Scripture does not coincide with. So we've looked at looming threats to, uh, you know, to our evangelical church now. And so what do we know? Then the last days, difficult times will come. They will be perilous times. And they'll proceed from bad to worse. And the deceivers themselves are in the process of being deceived. Which, isn't that another reason why we don't target people, but we understand the source of the aggression? That's what Scripture calls us to. But in the true church, Paul said that they will not make progress. All these characteristics that we see up here, progress does not have to be made in the true church because the folly of it will be obvious to all that are in it. So the game plan of source of regression against the church, I would argue to you, is these three things that we see from Hezekiah. Undermining authority, asserting dominance, and influencing thought.
So when it's ominous, when things are ominous and looming, looming against you or against the church, remember the source of aggression. Remember the tactics that are used. They were against Hezekiah too. His desire, the source of aggression's desire is to subjugate you to himself. The Assyrians wanted the Hebrews to surrender with no fight. And Satan likewise. But don't forget as the children of God that we are not immune from attacks. It is expected. Expect attacks directly and indirectly because of our faith. Not because we go out and do something wrong or because we, we do have a skewed political ideology. We'll expect to get attacked over that. But I'm talking about as conservative Christians that hold a conservative view of the Bible that, um, that we support traditional gender roles and that we oppose LGBTQ agenda, that kind of thing. So we hold to those things, expect to be attacked, but never lose sight that we don't target people like the culture does. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, it's against spiritual forces in high places. The next teaching, uh, Hezekiah has a really good example of how he defended through his uh, diligence and dependence on God, how he defended against all these threats. But uh, in closing, I'll just say, if you're missing God's protection in your life, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, then don't, let, don't think that Christ is what the political narrative is. Christ has an immense love for us as people that pierces through anything that's in this world, but anything false thing that the culture has to offer. And if you'd like to talk about how to come to know Christ, or if you have any questions about the things I've spoken about, I'll, I'll be glad. I'll be back at the, the door on the way out. I'll be glad to speak with anybody. So let's, uh, as we have a prayer, then the, the, the worship team will come, will come up. Father, thank you for, um, thank you for the, your scripture that provides opportunities for us to learn, to grow, and take something that happened hundreds of years ago and apply it now. May we be a people, Father, that seek you and that love you and that we love our enemies and that we uh, seek your righteousness and your holiness. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.